0: This is the Citizen of Heaven Podcast, number 74, Giants. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Here's what I have for you this week. I've been preaching about the Nephilim. Greatness in this life is usually incompatible with greatness in the eyes of God. I've been reading What It Is Is Preaching, memoirs of Robert Turner, one of the true giants of the faith I was privileged to know. I've been hearing fossilized giant footprints have been found all over the world. Your attitude toward the so-called proof says more about you than it says about the prince. I've been playing King Domino. If you dare strive for greatness, you are likely to get stomped on. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Genesis chapter 6, uh, starting verse number 1, reads as follows in the CSB version. When mankind began to multiply on the earth, And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. If you tuned in this week to find out what I thought the definitive explanation for the Nephilim is, I have bad news for you. I don't know what this passage means. I have my ideas, as a lot of people do. I don't know how you can definitively make any kind of argument from from the text. It is a head-scratcher. In the immediate context, it seems like This cohabitation between whoever the sons of God were and whoever the daughters of men were is directly responsible for them being the way they are, which is to say remarkable and heroic and powerful and even giant, physically large human beings. If that is the case, it might lend credence to the idea, as many people have suggested, maybe most, that the sons of God refers to angels and that the daughters of men refers to human beings. And this odd connection, this cohabitation resulted in these, pardon the expression, freaks of nature. That could be the case. And it could be the case again later on in the text, as is indicated here in Genesis chapter six. The Nephilim is a phrase that is used to refer to other giants, the sons of Anak, for instance, that are found in the cities of Canaan when the Israelite spies went into the land, in Numbers 13 and 14. We see a few of them lingering in the days of King Saul and King David, Goliath of Gath being the most famous one of those. There were certainly remarkable physical specimens in these later times. And these Nephilim that are described in the uh, pre-flood world, they left such an impression with Noah and his family that that same term was used later on to describe other people who clearly were not descended from these uh, great ones. There were other people. Other people have suggested this is simply sons of God being used the way it normally is in the text, referring to holy human beings, and that they corrupted themselves with daughters of men, which in the context would seem to indicate people not who were just human, but rather who had followed after the ways of men, righteous people and unrighteous people coming together. That doesn't seem to explain the greatness of the Nephilim, but it fits in very well with the overall context of the Bible. I'm not going to take a firm position either way. You can take whichever position you like. The point is this, that regardless of which road you want to take, what we find is a connection between holiness and unholiness. We find a connection with the things of God versus the things of the devil, if you will, or the things of men, if you prefer. That this connection of holy and unholy resulted in what would appear on the surface to be a remarkable and a positive thing. We want to be physically imposing. We want to be able to play professional basketball or, in, or accomplish some great thing in a physical way, and, and more is better in this way. And as far as carnal things go, I suppose that's probably true. But is bigger actually better? Is it better to be impressive in worldly ways? Is it better to be impressive in physical stature, the normal ways of measuring things? Is that really preferable? Well, it doesn't have to be a bad thing necessarily, but the Bible clearly indicates that it is not inherently a good thing. You see in, in the early chapters of Genesis, you see the line of Cain. Cain uh, was with his wife, and there's another discussion about that, where what exactly that means. But nevertheless, he had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And you start seeing a list of people, the first metal worker, the first wholesale worker of flocks and herds the first the one who invented music wouldn't you be wouldn't you love to be the person who invented music all of these great ones of human society came from Cain's side and there's no indication whatsoever anywhere in the text that anybody descended from Cain had any regard for serving god It's said in the days of Seth that people began to call on the name of the Lord there at the end of chapter 4 in Genesis. And the implication is that Seth is a part of that, that he is going in that direction. He's going in a spiritual direction, and Cain, his older brother, is going in a carnal direction. And if you put your emphasis on carnal things, on physical things, things that can be measured, things that can be weighed, clearly you're going to have a built-in advantage in those areas. Why wouldn't you? That's the way it ought to work out. The one who emphasizes running fast more than the person who doesn't emphasize running fast is more likely to win a gold medal for running fast. But if that is not our priority, if that's not what we want out of life, if we want spiritual things, we're probably going to be disappointed in carnal things. We're not going to become giants in the world. Is that a bad thing? And the Bible over and over again says, no, that is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. In fact, in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, the, the greatness of the world as measured by intelligence, by education, by reputation, is diminished. He says not many who are wise, not many who are understanding are going to come to the faith. Those ones who have excluded themselves from spiritual things, and we see that working even today. Great men of science, great men of wisdom, great men of experience. They may mouth some kind of appreciation for God, but they're not serving God with their life. They're serving science. They're serving ultimately themselves. That's not going to accomplish spiritual purposes. Let's not be discouraged when we find that the world is valuing the things that the world values, carnal things, giant things. You're never going to become a giant in the world by serving God. Thankfully, that's not our priority. Our priority is serving God. Our priority is building ourselves up spiritually. And if our reputation, our standing in the world is going to suffer, then let it suffer. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. If you had seen Robert Turner walking the streets of Burnett, Texas back in the day, probably the last word in the world that would have come to your mind is the word Giant. For a variety of reasons, not the least of which is his stature. Brother Brother Turner was just not a very tall individual. He was shorter than me, and I'm not tall by any stretch, pardon the expression. But beyond that, he didn't have that kind of aura that so many people, especially on television these days, seem to have. When people talk about President Trump, for instance, whether you like him or not, the same thing for President Obama, President Clinton, All all three of these men particularly had this, this reputation. Anybody who was with them, anyone who knew them knew, they come into a room and immediately every eye is drawn to them. They become the center of attention simply by being in the room. They don't have to say a word. They don't have to do anything. It's just this magnetism to them that's very difficult to explain but impossible to miss. They say Frank Sinatra was like that. When he would walk into a restaurant, the entire place would just stop. Nobody was thinking about anybody else. Nobody was looking at anybody else other than Mr. Sinatra. That kind of pull, that kind of, if you will, greatness is rare, but it is unmistakable. And some preachers have that, I think, to a certain degree at least. I don't know that it can be said that Brother Turner did. Brother Turner was not very boisterous. He wasn't loud. He wasn't going to command the attention of the room. He didn't draw attention to himself at all. I was not privileged to know him all that well. My parents knew him better than I did. But when I spent time with him, he was not especially remarkable in the sense that people of the world consider people to be remarkable. He was an ordinary person, and yet his life impacted thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, the things that he did, the things that he preached, the things that he wrote. And when I happened upon a copy of his memoir, What It Is Is Preaching, I grabbed it. I've been reading Plain Talk my entire life. And the I figured that there would be something there for me because I connect with Brother Turner, especially at this point in my life when I am the same age as he was when I was a young preacher, when I was Young in the faith, trying to figure out who I was going to be, whether I was going to be preaching my uh, the gospel for the rest of my life, and and so that same kind of wisdom that I get from my father or from from other people who are of that generation, I, I find that in Brother Turner, and it's not necessarily that he was remarkable in some general sense. In fact, when I was looking for a passage in the book to uh, to illustrate the kind of wisdom, the kind of of guidance that he offered, I was I was at a loss, actually. That's not the way the book reads. I I did find the passage toward the end of the book where he's describing the work of a preacher. He says, in the final analysis, the preacher must deal with people, and his knowledge of truth and principles will go for naught unless he learns to cope with and apply the message to people. He must learn that he and his hearers are sinners, self-responsible, but sinners nonetheless. If he expects perfection or nothing, he will get nothing. Such an attitude can blind him to his own sins and cause him to despise others. He cites the parable of the, the Pharisee and the public in Luke chapter 18. Yet he must keep the perfect standard before himself and others and work with them toward that goal. Learn to listen to others. I know it is hard, but listen and observe. Put yourself in their shoes. Seek to understand their problems. Make the kind of allowances you want for yourself. In a word, love them, and you will be able to bring them to Christ. Now, that's not going to be confused with the writings of Robert Schiller or... or Zig Ziglar or Tony Robbins or anybody like that. That's not going to get get people all riled up into a fervor and go out and, and save the world. But the gospel isn't like that. The gospel isn't emotionally charged for the sake of being emotionally charged is practical, it's simple, it's relatable, it reaches out to human beings where they are. And that's the way Brother Turner's writings were, that's the way his person was. That's the way I remember him. And in my mind, that's what makes a true giant. That's what makes somebody truly remarkable in a spiritual sense. It reminds me a great deal of Second Timothy chapter four, when Paul the Apostle, another man who didn't appear to have a whole lot of trappings of greatness about him, as far as we can tell from the personal information that we have related to us in the text, but still, by any estimation, a giant of the faith. When he wrote to Timothy describing the work of a preacher, that's how he described it, essentially. Chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Timothy, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead because of his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own defenses, uh, their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they will have an ear to hear what they wish to hear. They will turn aside from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do your job, he says. It doesn't have to be exciting. It usually isn't going to be exciting. It's hard. It's arduous. It's challenging. It's selfless. But you do this because it's the right thing to do. It's not going to get you a lot of headlines. It's not going to get you a lot of attention. You're not going to have buildings named after you necessarily for doing things like this. But that's the work of the preacher. That's the work of a Christian, really, in the greatest sense. If we focus on the work that God gives us to do, if we focus on meeting the challenges that come before us, if we rise to the occasion, God will give us the strength to cope with whatever we happen to have. It won't be because we had greatness within us, It's because God is great, and he empowers us to rise to whatever challenge may be confronting us. He gives the greatness. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. There is a dirt road in the Republic of South Africa near the Swaziland border. And yes, it's true, there is a nation in Southern Africa called Swaziland. And this road goes by an outcropping of rocks that have interesting divots and crevices uh, in them, several of them. One of them has an indentation that looks exactly, and I mean exactly, like a human footprint, except it's four and a half feet tall. It's an amazing concept. If you go to YouTube or or just Google it, you'll find this is not done in a closet. Uh, everybody knows about this print. And I love how it's handled in Africa. In America, there would be a fence around it. People would be selling tickets. Uh, you pay an extra $20 to have your photograph taken next to the giant footprint and all that. There's none of that. It's just there. Anybody can go see it. And if you believe that the Bible teaches the existence of extraordinarily large human beings, and you're prepared to accept that, there is a lot of interest in this kind of thing. And if you do not believe in that kind of thing, you're going to be interested as well for completely opposite reasons. And that's why I bring it up in this context here, because it, it gives you a couple of extreme approaches to the Bible in general and certain Bible facts in particular. There are going to be some people Who will believe anything because it supports their notion of what the Bible teaches? And the Bible has been dismissed and ridiculed and and criticized for centuries. And over and over again, the Bible has been proved right. And people of faith, people like me, like my parents and grandparents, have been able to push out their chest and say, Yes, we told you the Bible has been proved accurate, at least in this particular instance. And your criticism was invalid. And there are other people who have equally firm predispositions, except in the opposite direction. And they are determined to reject anything that does not conform with their view of science, their view of the world. That particularly has application toward Bible events that don't correspond with the the scientific method, etc. But in a broader sense as well. And they see something that might be used as evidence for something that they oppose, whether it's Bible-related or not, and they will automatically reject it. This is an impossible thing. There is no such thing as a 25-foot human being. And therefore, there is no such thing as a a 4.5-foot footprint. And therefore, this is fake. And that's all there is to it. And what you have basically is the same attitude toward this fact, this undeniable fact, from two different opposition points of view. It either could not possibly be true, or it absolutely has to be true. And there is, believe it or not, a middle ground. There is opportunity for investigation. Is it possibly true? Well, the Bible teaches that there were giants, and I believe the Bible, so at least I'm open to the idea. Is it not true? Well, I don't know. There is fakery in the world. There is weird coincidence in the world. No question about that. And this this rock is ha- has some problems. Not the least of which is it's standing upright. That's kind of weird in the first place. Footprints are generally horizontal. And it's also made out of granite. And that especially is a problem. Because when you make a footprint in sand that's going to eventually turn into sandstone, that makes sense. But when granite is not yet formed, we call it lava. And if you step into lava, you're not going to make a fossil. You're going to make a cripple. That's the way that these things work. It seems highly, highly unlikely that this is a genuine footprint. It's probably just a coincidence. And there are many, many others out there. Many of them look just like a footprint. And I fear that this kind of so-called evidence brings out the worst in people, that we feel compelled to accept it because it supports our point of view or reject it because it refutes our point of view. And there is a place for examining things. And if we use fakery as evidence for anything, especially with regard to Bible things, if we use something that is obviously fake or certainly appears to be fake, we're not doing the cause of Christ any, any favors. There is truth and there is error. And if you believe the Bible, truth is always going to be on the side of right. There is no fear in truth because nothing that is true is going to refute the giver of truth. The Bible tells us to do exactly the opposite over and over again, whether it's a testimony or the spoken word or the written word. We're told to examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good, especially in a moral context, but in a truth-telling context also. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, we can also talk about the Bereans in Acts 17 11, who examined the scriptures carefully to see if those things were so that Paul and Barnabas were, were talking about. Paul being an apostle, by the way. John tells us, First John 4, verse 1, that we're supposed to test the spirits. We ought to know what we believe and know why we believe it and not rely on things that are fake or quite possibly fake to prove our point. Don't be afraid of the truth. Seek out the truth and have confidence that the one who gives us truth, the one whose word is truth, is always going to be on the side of truth. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. King Domino is one of our family's favorite games, and recently we came across the Age of Giants expansion that we play alongside the game, and that makes it even better. King Domino is basically this. It's a tile-laying game where you're laying out a a kingdom for yourself made out of dominoes. They have ocean, or they have forest, or they have grassland, or, or swamps, or caves, or whatever it happens to be. And some of those have crowns on them, indicating a special value. And the The idea is you want to put your kingdom together in such a way as to make it extra valuable. And the value is determined by the size of the different areas and the number of crowns in that area. So if you have a a forest, for instance, that has 10 contiguous squares on it and 3 crowns in that area, 3 crowns times 10 squares makes that forest area worth 30 points, which is pretty good. And there are going to be some bonuses attached to it also. And you score all the different areas. And the one who has the most valuable kingdom is going to win the game. It's really pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of spin to it. Until you bring in the giants. And the giants are going to cover up one of the crowns. And obviously diminish the value of that part of your kingdom. So you don't want the giants. You want to avoid those if you possibly can. But here's the trick. When you add the giant expansion... You add tiles to the game. Some of them have extra crowns, which are really, really good. And those are high-numbered tiles. And there are tiles that carry with them the giants. And those are are designated by letters. And they are up at at the lower end. And the tiles that are available to claim are ranked. The letters come first, and then the small numbers, and onto the larger numbers. And if you pick the lowest-rated tile, in a particular round, you get to go first and have your first choice the next time. All that being said, it basically boils down to this. If you take the best tile available to you, you make it less likely that you're going to get a good tile the next time. And more likely that you're going to get a giant. So if you find this tremendous tile with four crowns on it available, you absolutely want to take that. But is it going to put you in danger of getting a giant in the next time? And if it does, this work that you've been doing is going to be decimated. If you really, really want to make something great and grand and tremendous, you put yourself in harm's way. That's the way striving for greatness tends to be in carnal things as well as spiritual things. If you want to be the greatest scientist ever, you push boundaries, you push envelopes, the whole Dr. Frankenstein kind of thing, or or Dr. Jekyll, you're going to... Go out of the normal boundaries and put yourself at risk and put yourself in harm's way, maybe even in a physical way, certainly with regard to your reputation. That's going to be the case. That may or may not be a good thing. It depends on your your career goals, I suppose. But if you want to strive for greatness, if you want to be a giant in the things of God, if you want to be remarkable you have to pursue God's things in God's ways, and those are not compatible with man's ways. We all know Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. If you want to be a proud person, if you want to put yourself first and be great, as it were, then beware. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, the text says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. That's very well documented. Pride is incompatible with greatness. Jesus says this over and over again, the one who comes to him as a little child, the one who humbles himself. This is the one that is great. The one who humbles himself before God is the one that God is going to exalt. And that is the trick that we need to find. We need to find a way to put ourselves in God's favor so that he can exalt us because the greatness that we want is always going to be the greatness that he provides for us. And if we happen to achieve that greatness, if we happen to be exactly what God wants us to be, Our problems are not over. Our problems are beginning at that point, because the more we excel in the faith, the more criticism we're going to heap upon ourselves, the more people are going to want to beat us down because of jealousy, because of envy, because they feel they're tired of having coals of fire heaped on their heads, whatever it happens to be. But that does not mean that we're on the wrong track. That doesn't mean that we've chosen the wrong path. We see other people who are striving for greatness in their minds as they define it, and they are getting it, and they're enjoying this life tremendously. And we frustrate ourselves here because we are going exactly the opposite way, and we're not getting the acclaim. We're not getting the attention. But as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 especially, the one who does these things to be seen of men is not God's person. We are looking for heavenly glory, we're looking for heavenly recognition. That's the way that we're truly going to be exalted, that's the glory that we want. God is going to take us off of this road that the world is on and put us on a completely different road. It doesn't look like a good road. It looks bad. That's why it's narrow. That's why it's small, because not many people are going to want to walk there. But God calls us to walk there. And at the end of this path is the greatness that he has for us. James says in James chapter 4, he gives a greater grace. He promises us, I have something greater for you than you can ever acquire for yourself, but you have to trust in me. Strive for my kind of greatness And you will be exalted. That is the promise that God himself gives us. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe if you have not already. Shares, ratings, comments, and questions are always welcome. Feel free to reach out to me on social media with any questions or suggestions. And watch my YouTube channel and our website, www.halhammons.com, for articles, sermons, and notifications regarding other content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.